0: So, uh, good morning, people of God, and again, uh, a big welcome to any visitors with us. Hope you all had a very happy Thanksgiving and aren't feeling too overstuffed. Uh, I I personally have had to loosen the the belt a notch, but let's not go there. (laughs) Um, This is the first Sunday in Advent, Uh, and Advent, as I mentioned last week, is a penitential season, which means it's a season for reflecting on our weakness and neediness. Don't we just love reflecting on that? That's what this season is for. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a season for taking stock of the fact that we need God and that without God we're not going to make it in a, in a very special focused way. And related to that, Advent is a season and a time for, for prayer, a time for devoting ourselves with renewed vigor to this very important central form of communion with God. And so along these lines for the next four Sundays we're going to be uh, thinking about praying and we're going to do that in conversation with Jesus by looking at the Lord's Prayer, the greatest prayer uh, ever given to humanity. prayer that Jesus used, a prayer that, that we use. In fact, we use it every Sunday here as part of our communion liturgy. So if you've been with us for a while, you'll know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, even so, you might know the words, but it's good to slow down from time to time and think about those words and to dwell with this prayer. Uh, that's what we're going to do during Advent. But before we actually turn to the Lord's Prayer, I want to spend some time with the little lesson on praying that Jesus gives right before he introduces the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So that's what we're going to look at today. But before I say anything else, let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, these words inspire and fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters, and if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Amen. Amen. You'll find the passage printed there in your bulletin so if you've got that at hand or a Bible and then of course we've got it on the screen as well. I do that by the way because when when it comes to preaching it's what God's word says that is the most important thing. I am just trying to unpack and expound that. That's why I'm doing everything I can to put scripture into your hands on the screen wherever else it might be, tablet, whatever. Now within the larger context of Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18, Jesus' teaching about prayer is just an illustration of a key kingdom principle, and the principle is laid out in verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your piety among men so as to be seen by them. Because if you do that, then you're not going to have a reward from your Father in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say that this principle, that key kingdom principle, has implications, colossal implications, among other things, for our prayer life. Consider. Praying is something that we can become good at. And in turn, and this has been the case in church history, it can be an occasion for showing off a little bit. And that's, of course, a little bit worrying. By the way, pastors can be especially guilty of this. Take me as an example. Uh, I find that when I'm gathered with a group of other pastors, as I do from time to time, we get together to pray, and then people are praying, and uh, instead of listening and dwelling on the prayers that they're praying, uh, what am I doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say when it's my turn. Uh, You know, will it sound sincere and appropriate, or will I sound foolish or ineloquent or stupid? Uh, I wish that wasn't the case, but it sometimes is the case. And by the way, it's not always the case without reason. Uh, This story came to me when I was preparing the sermon. I was once leading uh, a little Bible study group, and we were looking at John 12. It's a beautiful story there about Mary, probably Mary Magdalene, anointing Jesus' feet with some oil, and then wiping them with her hair so we were studying that passage and at the end of the Bible study I said let's all pray and then and then I prayed I said Lord help us to be like Mary who washed her hair with Jesus feet so I kind of got that wrong so it is worth thinking about what we say when we pray sometimes Uh, now Jesus knows about my struggles with prayer and what he says here in Matthew 6 is meant to help me it's meant to help you it's meant to help us Um, so raise your hand if you're a prayer Jedi if you're a prayer Jedi then you can go ahead and leave now and head on out to lunch But for the rest of us, we can stay here, we can learn something about prayer from Jesus. And his help today comes in basically two pictures of problematic praying, Uh, pictures of what one commentator calls pious frauds. Uh, In verse 5, we meet a Jewish man at prayer, and in verse 7, we meet a Gentile person at prayer. A Gentile is just a non-Jewish person, a Greek person, a pagan person. That's how they divided people in the ancient world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Uh, So let's zoom in on the Jew first. Now some of you will know that uh, in first century Israel uh, public prayer was kind of the norm. There was a lot of public praying and this particular guy, he loves to pray, he loves to pray in public, he, he likes to be set in an example, he likes to be seen and admired, uh, that's why he's praying on the street corner. People on two roads can see him and admire him praying. And people would have esteemed him, he would have been a religious example to follow. And what we have in this guy is a picture of the religiosity of multitudes of people who exist in what you might call religious cultures. We're not really in a religious culture here, but there are a lot of them around the world. I think, especially, for example, of Muslim or Islamic cultures, uh, the religiosity in those places, the approach to prayer, it's very punctilious, it's very regular, and at the center of it all are rituals and ceremonies and duties which have to be kept uh, fastidiously. I actually witnessed this last April. My family, we were over in Morocco, in North Africa, that is an Islamic uh, monarchy. And we were there during Ramadan, and on more than one occasion at certain set hours of the day, I would witness people on their knees, on a mat on the side of the road, making prayer to Allah. Uh, There they were, they pulled their car off the highway or their motorcycle, they were kneeling down on the shoulder of the road and they were praying. I mean, it was, uh, quite frankly, it was pretty impressive. Um, There's a discipline there, a punctiliousness. That stands in striking contrast to a lot of the Christian spirituality in our part of the world these days. Uh, Nevertheless, when Jesus looks at that form of praying, when he gazes at this pious Jew standing on the street corner, uh, he says something is missing here. Something's missing. And what is that? A personal relationship to God, his Father a personal intimate relationship to God as Father. And that is very important. In Matthew 18, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus nine times, that's almost every other verse, speaks of God as Father. God is my Father, God is your Father. So that understanding of God is central to everything that he is teaching us today. Uh, But alas, the Jew praying there on the street corner in verse 5, he is not concerned about his personal relationship to God as Father. Nobody's asking about that. Nobody cares about that. Instead, the focus is on how effectively he plays his part, Uh, how good he is at being the hypocrite, which is the word Jesus uses there in verse 5. Now, in Greek, the word hypocrite, strictly speaking, it simply means someone who assumes a role. Assumes a role, someone who puts on a costume or a mask and waltzes onto stage to play his or her part. Mr. Putin does that a lot in the Orthodox Church. He goes to church, he kisses the Bible, he does all the religious motions, but you do wonder about that personal relationship with God. I'm not saying he doesn't have one, but you do wonder. And so it is with this Jewish man at prayer. He's enthusiastically playing his part, he's being applauded for how well he, he does this role, but it's just a role. And so there's something a little bit impersonal, disingenuous. There's something hollow about all of it. His reward is not intimacy with the living God, but rather the applause, the acclamation of other people. And what does Jesus say about all this? He says, you must not be like that. That's what he says. Those are his words verbatim. You must not be like that. That's not what prayer is all about. Second example of prayer, verse 7, is with this uh, Gentile, this pagan Greek person doing his prayers. Uh, now, in, the, in, in that sort of religion, uh, they thought that by heaping up many phrases, uh, you would be heard by God, or you'd be heard by the gods, as was more often the case, because they were polytheistic. Uh, so babbling and blathering on, that would get the, the gods to act on your behalf. Just keep talking, and the folks upstairs will finally hear, and they'll act. You know, it's, it's waging a war of attrition on God. You're just talking until the gods act, because they're tired of hearing you talk so much, and so they do something to shut you up. They give you what you want. Now I want to stop here real quick and preempt a potential misunderstanding about this passage It's particularly relevant to those of us who are kind of in an Anglican world. Um, Jesus, what he's teaching here is not opposed to scripted prayers uh, or repetition in prayer. Uh, He's not telling us that we shouldn't say, Lord, in your mercy, many times as we do during the prayers of the people. We'll do that in just a few minutes here. Um, This is not a stick by which you can beat the liturgy. I'm going to be anti-liturgical because Jesus was anti-liturgical. That's not the point of this passage. And nor is Jesus rejecting or opposing any sort of repetition in our own personal prayers. Jesus himself repeated himself when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so that's not what's going on here. What, what is the memo? What is the point? Uh, what Jesus has in mind is, is the Gentile pagan who thinks of his gods as being largely indifferent as being selfish. These are gods who look after themselves, feather their own nest. They live in some far-off enchanted life sipping heavenly martinis. They can't be bothered with the plight of humanity. Uh, and that's because the pagan Gentile uh, thinks of his gods as being made in his own image. His gods are like him. It was Voltaire, the French philosopher, who once said, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And that's how it's been throughout history. And so these, this guy, in order to, to get through to the gods, he's got to flatter. He's got to bribe, he's got to cajole these gods. And eventually, if you do enough of that, they'll give in and listen because they're uh, tired from not listening. It's a bit like trying to get, you know, imagine you've, you've locked your bike up somewhere and it's a combination lock and you've forgotten, the, you've forgotten the combination, you know. So it's a bit like just kind of scrolling through and trying to get the right combination and, and then you finally get it and you remember it and you just, you, know, you just use that over and over. It's like a magic formula to get the gods to act. And Jesus looks at all that and he says, do not be like that. Don't pray like that. That's not the way of true prayer. And why? The answer's there in verse 8. Because your Father in heaven, he knows what you need before you ask. He knows what you need even before you ask. See, the pagan Gentile assumes that his God doesn't hear and doesn't care. His God's got to be made to care. So he keeps on telling his God what he needs until his God finally pays attention. But not so with the living God, the one that Jesus calls our Father in heaven. Verse 9. See, our Father in Heaven knows what we need before we ask. He knows what we need even before we know what we need. And He cares deeply. And so we've got here two negative examples of prayer from Jesus. This is is an instance of teaching by contrast, which is something that our Lord often does. He presents the characteristic, stereotypical Jew of His time doing prayer, and He says, don't be like that. And then He presents the characteristic, stereotypical Gentile at prayer, and He says, and don't be like that either. Now here's something you need to know. Both of these examples would have grabbed the attention of Jesus' original listening audience, his original hearers, because both of these two praying people in their respective religious context would have been applauded for their praying. They would have been hailed by their contemporaries because they're preserving the traditions, they're acting with diligence, they're doing their duty, they're playing their part admirably. I want to be like them. That's what people would say. These are people to imitate. But Jesus looks at that and he says, nope, there's something wrong here. These people are deceived in what they're doing. That's what he says. This is not what is at the heart of prayer. Look again at these two striking pictures. You've got the Jew. The Jewish person. This is someone who knows about the true God. Someone with a great and glorious religious inheritance. Uh, The Jews are people who had been taught down the centuries about Jehovah, the ways of proper worship but when God put on the face of Jesus of Nazareth and came down among these people, his people, nobody recognized him. They had all the religious exercises they were maintaining, the old ways had been carefully preserved, the great heritage had been sustained, but God came and nobody knew him. Somehow that had been lost. They didn't recognize him. He went to the synagogues where they prayed to him and they cast him out. That's what happened. And then you've got the pagan Gentile. He prays as someone who's never actually found the living God. He's praying to God so that he's made up out of his own image. And so the Jew is praying here as someone who's lost hold of God and the pagan Gentile is praying as someone who is not yet known to God. And we should not pray in either of those ways, says Jesus. But more than this there is a a deeper problem that Jesus is exposing in these two negative examples it's a more profound problem arguably and it's a problem that both of these guys have in common Uh, what's at the center of these two examples of prayer did you notice if you look carefully you'll see that our old friend self makes an appearance glance again there at verse 5 this man loves to pray in order that what that he might draw close to God and experience intimacy with him oh no he loves to pray that he might be seen by men. This is somebody who's lost sight of God. A personal relationship with God is long. And if you haven't got an invisible God watching you, then you look to be seen by other people. You become much more conscious of their eyes. So what sustains this guy's public devotion? Public esteem. Public, that's, that's the fuel in his tank. And what motivates the pagan Gentile, verse 7, what he's doing, he's praying because he just wants his gods to do what he wants, uh, to accommodate his agenda. And so for him, prayer is just a glorified gold rush. It's a glorified gold rush. What occupies him is how to get the most out of his gods. Both of these guys have self right at the center and at the heart of their praying. And in both cases as I've said just a moment ago it's important to recognize their way of the their example of prayer would have been admired and celebrated, uh, seen as an example to be followed. And so it remains until this very day because a lot of the prayer in the world, even most of the prayer in this world falls along the line of these two examples. But according to God it's completely unacceptable. According to Jesus at least. Do not pray like that. This is a pretty disturbing picture when you begin to see it for what it is because what seems so right is in fact so wrong. It's a tough teaching of Jesus. Now at this point you're probably wondering, well is there an alternative? Jesus has criticized these two common forms of prayer, but so what are, what are we to do? Is there an alternative? And the answer is yes. Of course it's yes because Jesus doesn't just criticize, he offers an alternative and leads us to a more excellent way. And I want to spotlight a couple things here. First, Jesus invites us to pray as Christians. And what does that mean? That means just to pray as men and women and children who have a living relationship with God our Father. In this sense, true prayer is not just worrying out loud or wishful thinking. It doesn't reduce down to rituals and rites. Perish all those thoughts. True prayer prayer is an intimate affair. It involves intimate and private names calling upon God, not as, or thinking about God, not as some heavenly principle or deity far removed or some divine majesty far away, but rather, Jesus says, rather calling upon God as Abba, Father. That's very intimate and personal language. You see, according to Jesus, we are to call the creator and judge of all things, our Father, my Father. That's how Jesus knows God. It's all over Matthew chapter six. That's how he knows God. Do you know God that way? Sometimes religion can get really formal and we feel uncomfortable saying things like Abba Father to God. But the one that we follow says that's the name that God wants us to call him, Abba Father. I wanna go so far as to say the entire gospel is actually wrapped up in this because God is not just the father of Jesus. He's also my father. And he's your father, and he's a wonderful father. And so regardless of what your biological dads may have been like, regardless of their failures, and there are a lot of them, I know, we have a heavenly father who looks over us, watches us, loves us, which means that whenever I pray to him, he never says, Roger, what do you want now? He doesn't say that. He knows exactly what I need, better than I do. And he is delighted to help me. Speaking of help, uh, God your Father and my Father is also delighted to help me see that what I sometimes think I need, what I sometimes want, what I sometimes feel would be best for my life, for my church, for this world, would in fact be silly or maybe it's idiotic or even disastrous because all too often my prayers Our prayers are directed not by the richness of God's word, of his promises, of an attunement to God's will, but rather they're directed by the poverty of my own heart. That's often the case, and that needs to change. It's good for us for that to change. And so God is really committed to helping me become someone in you who is more and more able to carefully discern and pursue his will so that his will might be fulfilled in my life rather than my own myopic preferences and how utterly different that is from the Gentile praying in verse 7 this guy is heaping up petitions on God so that he can get his own agenda advanced he's thinking about how, how I can get my will done but with a Christian it's really different because as my conversion deepens as our conversions deepen we begin to pray instead how not how I can get my will done but how I can get thy will done including thy will for my life This is about complete surrender, and that's what the Christian life is about. If anyone has ever told you anything different, ignore it. Throw it out. The Christian life is about complete surrender to God. Thy will be done, and to trust that that is a good will, and that will lead to your ultimate goodness and flourishing. That's a huge change from what you see in the pagan Gentile praying there. He says, he's trying to manipulate God. Send me something. Show me the money. That's what he's saying. But when you have a living relationship with our Father in heaven, you begin to pray instead that His will may be done on earth in my life as it's always done in heaven. Now, if you struggle to pray out of that posture, that is okay. So do I. We all do. So what do we do? We just ask God to lead us into it more fully. We pray for that. I want you to pray for that today if you need to. I want you to pray for that throughout Advent. I sure as heck will be. Second little pointer Jesus gives for for the life of authentic prayer uh, is that uh, prayer is a secret thing. Prayer is a secret thing. It's not always, of course, a secret thing because there's a lot in the Bible that underscores the importance of praying together. That's what we do here at church on Sundays. It's what you do in your 242 groups. We do pray together, but nevertheless, secrecy, privacy in prayer is a hallmark of Christian life. So it's a both end. We pray in public and together, but we also pray in private and by ourselves in secret. And sometimes, if you're like me, there's a tendency to kind of lean a bit more into the public stuff and sort of neglect the private. And Jesus says, don't do that. Keep the private strong. Let that undergird the public. Let me put it like this, those who come into a living relationship with our Father in heaven will begin to love, praying in the secret place and behind the closed door. Praying in the secret place behind the closed door, verse six. Now in the context of first, uh, in first century, uh, the homes of first century Palestinian peasants, the people that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching, The little room that he mentions in verse 6 was probably the only chamber in the house that even had a door. It was a little room in a little house and it was probably the only room with a door. And it was the space where supplies would have been stored. It was the tiny room where nothing important was seen to be happening. It was the storage room. And Jesus says, actually, that's the most important room in the house. That's where the most important stuff happens in this house. As your relationship with God grows, you begin to go into the quiet room. You begin to close the door, you begin to pray, you begin to revel in it. Uh, By the way, one benefit uh, to praying in private behind the closed door is that if you do it really badly, nobody will know except for God. And God does not care. He does not care. Now this sort of reveling in prayer, some of you think, oh, reveling in prayer, that's not been my experience. It feels like more of a chore sometimes. I understand. It's an acquired love. It's an acquired love which means in the beginning and even for a while, you have to use a little discipline to to pray. But at some point, you'll begin to find you can't get on without it. The hypocrite, in verse 5, he can't get on without the praise of man, without the applause of all the people watching him. But the Christian, she can't get on without intimacy with God. She can't get on without prayer in the secret place behind the closed door. So it comes to this, you might say, Christian is a person with a secret life. This is something I've talked about before and I love to talk about this. The Christian is a person with a secret life. Uh, we know there are many men in the world, men and women in the world who are like this. They have a secret life. There are a large number of people in this town, in this county, from further afield, uh, be coming along to work tomorrow, driving up Highway 17, going to the businesses, the shops, the places of commerce in the vicinity, and they have a secret life. Their spouse doesn't know about it. Their colleagues and their children don't know about it. Now when we talk like that, we usually mean something evil, don't we? Something naughty. But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, Christians too should have a secret life. And this secret life of the Christian is not something that's going to be written about in your biography. If you get a biography written about you, nobody's going to mention it there. If you get a bridge named after you and they put a placard up, it's probably not going to be mentioned there either because this secret life centers on prayer and that prayer can change things immeasurably can change the whole situation at the church to which you belong you got to that church and there was no gospel ministry there weren't many young people and you started praying and new life was generated and that secret life can be really really decisive for the battles the internal battles that we're all facing Uh, the immense struggle for self-control, the struggle to be generous, the struggle to forgive. Nobody saw you fighting those battles. They just thought you were a generous and cheerful and forgiving person. You didn't have uh, a, a drop of vengefulness or resentment in your blood, but you did. You actually did. And you were fighting those secret battles in prayer. Nobody knew about those battles, but you were fighting those battles in the quiet place behind the closed door. None of that's going to be mentioned in your biography. It's not going to be mentioned on your placard if you get one. If you have a bridge named after you, but all that—that that matters hugely. That prayer matters hugely, and what happens as a result of that prayer can make miracles seem tame by comparison. So, do you have a secret life? I hope so. Jesus says we should, and that huge secret life should center on prayer to a God who has formed us. For his pleasure, who means for us to know him, to enjoy him, to live before him, and to draw all of our strength and vitality from his smile. That's at the center of the secret life of the Christian. I speak to you in the name of the three guys I admire the most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.